What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. I am very, very excited to be here with part two of our five-part episode series on nostalgia. We are orienting the podcast towards joy, and we are talking about pieces of artwork, cinema that we loved as kids, and we are analyzing them through the history, mythology, and philosophy lens. If you've been following us on social media, which I'm assuming that you have, you know what we're going to do this week. We are going to do hook, hook, bring us the hook, 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 bring us the hook. We are going to talk about the Steven Spielberg uh, retooling, reimagining, adaptation of the famous story of Peter Pan starring Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman, Bob Hoskins, everyone and anyone amazing is in this. Julia Roberts. Yeah. Maggie, Dame Maggie Smith. Everybody, you know how to get there. You follow the second star to the right and you go straight on till morning. Straight on till morning. And we all believe in fairies and we have to clap our hands so that they can live. We're Going to Neverland. This is the first time we're, we're going to be talking about Peter Pan. I can't wait to do this. There is literally so much we can get to that we can analyze and we can discuss about this amazing movie. I saw it in the movie theater as a kid, and it was a classic. My family, we purchased it on Laserdisc. Oh, my God. Remember those? We had yeah. a Laserdisc player. So we had Hook on Laserdisc. It's four gigantic discs that you had to flip halfway through and then interchange out. And this is a classic in my family. It is so deeply loved. And I hadn't seen it in such a long time. I I literally cannot wait to talk about this I have so much to say. Laurel, how you doing? How you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling great, too. You know, I didn't see it in the movie theater, and I did not own it on Laserdisc, but I do distinctly remember watching Hook for the first time on network TV with commercials, which now I kind of can't believe I sat through as a kid because the movie is two and a half hours long. So how long was it with commercials? But I remember loving it, and gosh, it was fun to revisit. It really, really was. Um, I was worried that as an adult, this wouldn't hold up. And obviously being a grown up and watching, you know, this movie that's certainly 
uh, tooled for families and that has a lot of things that feel very dated, um, there are definitely aspects of it that don't quite work. It's not perfect. I can understand why the critics were not thrilled with it when it came out, but it's really, really hard to take off the nostalgia goggles on this one. It is just so charming. Um, it is so um, sincere in the way that it delivers its message. The performances are outstanding from top to bottom, uh, you know, let alone the incredible performance by Robin Williams, who will always, always bring a smile to my face and a tear to my eye. Uh, this was just a tremendous experience to rewatch as a grown-up and to be able to dig into those themes a little bit more because the themes evolve as the viewer evolves, as the viewer grows up. And I think that's a testament to a really great story, even if it does have its problems. Yep. Directed by Steven Spielberg, scored by John Williams, oh. starring Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams. I mean, this is literally a dream team, in particular in the 90s, this was like all expenses. Everyone's going in. Steven Spielberg's going to Neverland. And interestingly, I found out that it has a 23 on Rotten 28, Tomatoes. 28. 28, yeah. pardon me, which I thought was like shockingly low. I couldn't believe it. There's a lot of online communities dedicated to disliking Hook, which I was like, wow, I didn't realize that there were so many people that disliked it. And as there are the people out there tearing something down, there's the vibrant and amazing community celebrating it. And we're not going to tear down Hook. We're going to celebrate Hook. Yeah. I loved rewatching it. I adore every second of this movie. And I can't wait to polish off my Hook <laughs> and put it on. And I can't wait to talk about this as the bloated codfish that I am so that we can find our good form and really understand an epic battle of good versus evil to the death. Do we want to find out how this movie ticks? Perhaps? Ooh, ooh that's even clever. What I like it. What makes it tick? What makes this movie tick tock? Anyway, let's start. Let's roll up our sleeves. Um, but before we do that, as always, Laurel, do your thing. Well, here at the Midnight Myth, the conversation never begins or ends on the podcast. We always want to hear from you. So if you want to get in touch, share some feedback, share some comments, share some suggestions for episodes you want to hear us do in the future, we would love to hear from you. Uh, so hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at the Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Um, and you can also head over to our website if you want more from The Midnight Myth. We're at midnightmyth.com. Uh, and there are blogs there. There is additional content. You can sign up for our email list. Um, and you can also get links to our Patreon and our merch store. So if you have a few dollars to contribute to us to support the podcast in these troubling times, we would love to have those dollars. But if you don't, that's understandable too. There is one really special way that you can help the podcast out that is totally free. It only takes about five minutes of your time, and that is to leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that goes a really, really long way in helping us stay on the charts and helping us reach new audiences and just making us feel really good for the work that we do here. Every time we get uh, a nice review from somebody who enjoys the podcast, it really, I, I can't tell you how meaningful it is to us. So please consider doing that if you haven't done it yet um, and stay tuned for more episodes in the future. And fellow travelers on the path of the beam. Big news. We have recorded the final episode of Wheel of Ka. 
It will be out shortly. We're still editing it down. We have gotten to the tower. And if you want to know what Derek and Steve think about it, refresh those feeds, hit us up on social media, and we're there because Ka is a wheel. Yep. So if if you don't listen to the Wheel of Ka and that was all gibberish for you, Derek and Steve are reading through all of Stephen King's The Dark Tower, and they are finally publishing the final installment of this seven-book epic fantasy series uh, and the reread that they did. If you are looking for a book to read right now and you're a Stephen King fan or you uh, have never read Stephen King in your life, there is no better pairing of people, I think, to read along with than Derek and Steve. Um, They have just tremendous insights into Stephen King and his works. So, you know, download those those books on Audible or, you know, pick up pick those up from a local bookstore that's delivering and check out the Wheel of Ka. Absolutely. On with Hook. Hook. Shall we do a briefest of briefest of recaps? Yes, it's tradition. So Hook features a main character played by Robin Williams by the name of Peter Banning. He is a corporate lawyer and he is putting his work ahead of his family. He's taking his family back to London where they're going to meet grandmother Wendy who ran an orphanage that took him in when he was 12 years old and she is getting honored with an award and a major expansion to her uh, orphanage that she has set up and established. Peter has two kids and a wife, and even while he is there with Granny Wendy, he is putting together a deal of his life and ignoring his family. This is obviously causing some consternation, but things go pretty well at the event dinner. When they come home, they find that the children have been kidnapped, and there is a mysterious note stabbed to the door saying that Captain James Hook requests Peter Pan's presence to go back to Neverland and battle to the death. This is where we learn that Wendy, Grandma Wendy, is actually the Wendy from the book and the stories of Peter Pan, and that Peter Banning is actually Peter Pan. Peter doesn't believe this, has no memory of this, and thinks that she's lost her mind. Enter in Tinkerbell, played by the amazing Julia Roberts, who knocks out Peter and takes him to Neverland. There he encounters Captain Hook for the first time as an adult and Captain has kidnapped the kids because he wants to battle Peter Pan to the death to plan his revenge for when Peter Pan chopped off his hand and fed it to a crocodile. Peter has no memory of this. He tries to rescue his kids and Hook is very upset over this. Tinkerbell then intercedes before they cast Peter overboard and says, listen, give me three days I'll force him to remember, I'll train him up, and you'll have hit the war. Meanwhile, in these three days, Peter ends up with the Lost Boys, and he goes through a series of almost Rocky-like trials to try to uncover his imagination, remember who he was, learn how to fly, learn how to crow, and learn how to fight pirates. He meets all of the Lost Boys, including their current leader, Rufio, who's a really upset that this old man is coming back pretending to be Pan the Man. Peter ends up, through the help of Tinkerbell, remembering he remembers his mother and remembers that he's Peter Pan. Meanwhile, Captain Hook is not just sitting around doing nothing. He and his top henchman, Shmee, come up with a plan to force Peter's children to fall in love with Hook. That way, when Peter comes to fight them, he would find that the children like Captain Hook more than they love their father as the ultimate revenge, the lemon juice in the paper cut, if you will. 
This doesn't work on his daughter, Maggie, who tells her brother Jack to run home, but it does work on Jack, who is very angry at his father for not going to see his baseball game. Long story short, three days pass, Peter Pan comes, an epic and silly Spielbergian battle happens where the Lost Boys defeat the pirates, the crocodile miraculously comes back to life at the last minute, swallows Captain Hook, Peter leaves Neverland, realizing that he can never put his job in front of his family again, and that to live, to live would be a mighty adventure, having learned the value of bringing some of his childhood back. And that's the movie. What an incredible recap. Thank you for that. I was really brief. impressive. Yeah. Brief. Brief. Briefest, briefest of briefs. Brief. <laughs> now that we have done the recap, I guess I should have done the spoiler wall, but we've all seen it. Yeah. This is a nostalgia series. Everyone's seen Hook. Tell me, what do you think? Does the movie hold up? Um, you know, I said a little bit of this at the beginning. I think I can see the cracks in it more as an adult. Um, I think it is an hour too long. Um, and I think that it does rely pretty heavily on a lot of cliches. You know, the dad not showing up to the baseball game and always on the phone and throwing the phone out the window. Um, but in general, this movie emotionally still hits home for me. It's still very effective. The stakes are so high and so real on every level. The characters are, uh, I think, really well drawn. I said already the performances are stellar. Um, but we we believe and we invest in this family and what it really means for them to come back together. And we invest in the idea of Peter Banning rediscovering the pan um, because there's a part of us that wants to rediscover our pan. Um, I think it takes so much of the Peter Pan mythos that is so baked into us um, and reshapes it in a really poignant way. Um, and so I, I do think the movie holds up uh, as a whole, um, just as an emotional experience. And a lot of that, you know, that's our generation. This movie came out the year after I was born. Um, and I think a lot of 80s and 90s kids feel a deep, deep connection to this. Um, so it's hard for me to step away from that deep connection. But um, yeah, I think it's still really powerful. Yeah, Peter Pan to me, it's a lot like Robin Hood. I can't tell you when I first heard the story of Peter Pan. Yeah. But it's like I've always known it. Yeah. I've always had Peter Pan. I've always known that story. I loved it as a child. And I was getting to be an older child when Peter Pan came out. I was still very much a kid. And when Hook came out, pardon me. And to me, that was one of the best evolutions and adaptations from a set time-tested, centuries-old uh, child mythology. It is almost Disney-esque in its production value, though it's not a Disney movie, and it looks amazing. It feels amazing. John Williams does the music, so yeah. the music is just, you know, perfect. And at the core of this movie, and really the thing that it it is amazing, it's, it is in the acting. The acting in this movie yeah. 100% holds up. Every single one of these actors completely commits to their part. And these were like huge names. Huge names. And there are huge names in tiny cameos in this movie too. Like people wanted to work for Spielberg and being be in this movie. Glenn Close is one of the pirates. Um, Phil Collins is the detective. George Lucas and Carrie Fisher make a very small cameo in the beginning. So like people wanted to be part of this. 
Absolutely. And, but at the end of it, you have, and I would say the, the call out performances to me are Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins Bob Hoskins as Peter Pan, Captain Hook and Smee. And that, that trio of acting and when they're in their scenes together is so stellar is so phenomenal that to me carries the movie out of like, Oh, this was just a movie I really liked as a kid. For example, when I was a little boy, we used to watch Pippi Longstocking. Yeah. And we used to love Pippi Longstocking. I don't know if I'd like that as an adult. Maybe I would, but I would nostalgically like it, right? Yeah. If I saw that now, I'd be like, oh, I watched this as a kid. I loved it. Or, you know, another example, the He-Man cartoons. You know, the He-Man cartoons. I loved them as a kid. You put them on now and you're like, okay, I, you know, that's yeah. He-Man. <laughs> this one still has a lot of artistic merit, a lot of narrative merit, um, that still shines through, that carries it to today and makes it still a very enjoyable viewing experience. So it's a long-winded way to answer. I do think it mostly holds up. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, and you were saying something about how this is built on the foundation of Peter Pan and, and that story has kind of always been a part of your life. And I think that one of the successes of Hook uh, is the great success of Peter Pan, which is, to me, it's multiplicity. Um you know, a lot of people think that the story started out as a novel uh, by J.M. Barry, but it actually began as a play uh, in 1904, and then the novel came later in 1911. So it very much, um, in its earliest days, were two different media. And even today, we we hold the image of the 1953 animated Disney film. Uh, we hold every stage production we've ever seen, and we hold Hook. And these all come together to coalesce into this huge uh, Neverland mythos that we can always access and always feels like part of the same world. Um, so I think that, you know, one of the great things about Peter Pan is that it it doesn't have to be one interpretation. It doesn't have to be one medium. Uh, we can... We can go to Neverland in all of these different forms and all of these different iterations. And we see a nod to that when we see the movie. It opens with the daughter, Maggie, playing Wendy yeah. in Peter Pan in a play. In the play. It starts with recognizing that a play is part of this heritage. And this is a world in which people tell the story of Peter Pan. It is our world, however Peter Pan actually did happen. Neverland is a place. Captain Hook is an actual pirate that lives there. It is this like almost alternate fantasy dimension that is a tangible real place. The only thing that's tragic is the character, the person who is most responsible for all of the fame of Peter Pan thinks he's Peter Banning, corporate lawyer, and is afraid to fly. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great premise. I think it's a great premise too. What if Peter Pan, the boy who wouldn't grow up, grew up? Um, you know, I should mention here at the beginning that in addition to Peter and Wendy, the original novel and play, uh, J.M. Barry did eventually write a sequel, which was called When Wendy Grew Up, because the book, the, the original story, ends with Wendy making the choice to go back to London and live her life and get married and have children and grow up. She recognizes that it's inevitable, unlike Peter Pan, who can make the choice not to grow up. And in that sequel, When Wendy Grew Up, Wendy goes back, she gets married, she has a daughter named Jane. Peter visits the nursery again in the story, thinking he's coming to get Wendy, still a young girl, but he meets Jane instead. 
and he takes Jane to Neverland with Wendy's permission because Wendy is like, I trust my daughter to make the right decision and to grow up eventually. Um, it's implied by a narration in that story that Peter will eventually come back and meet Wendy's granddaughter, Margaret, and he will take her to Neverland too, and it will continue. This will be a story that continues, and the girls will continue making the decision to grow up. And so I think that plays a big part in Hook as well, because we obviously have the backstory of Peter Pan choosing to grow up because he fell in love with Moira, Wendy's granddaughter, which very much is part of the when Wendy grew up kind of mythos. Yeah, definitely. I think that's very interesting, and I think it's a good place to really transition into some of the analysis here of this film. Um, can I kick off with a question? Yeah. I'd like to get your take on it. And we didn't run this down, so I'm, I'm doing a bit of a Midnight Myth-style boomerang here. Yeah. What's the deal with Neverland? What do you think it represents? Is there a deeper symbol that we can understand in this world? Should we understand it as part of the Peter Pan or part of the Hook universe? What's the deal with Neverland? Why do you think it it has such a sway over us? And what do you think its symbolic language is telling us? And let's filter it through the movie Hook specifically. Yeah, I think Neverland is tied to uh, the, the greatest themes of uh, any Peter Pan adaptation. Neverland is fantasy. Neverland is imagination. Neverland is a world where fairies and mermaids and pirates and Native Americans all live in the same island and you can trip along and run into different cultures, meet different people, fight big wars, or do these fantastical games and you can fly. It's dreams. It's the things you can never really do in real life, but you can in your imagination. And that is childhood, right? So that's how we imagine things that we're able to do as children. We're able to imagine a world where regular rules don't apply. You can step off the ground with a happy thought and you can fly up into the sky. Uh, you can, it, it, there's no rules, there's no consequences. You can do whatever you want without having to fear growing up. And you can even you know, get into danger and get into trouble, but it's still gonna be fun and it's still gonna be fantasy. That's Neverland. Neverland is fantasy, Neverland is innocence, Neverland is imagination. And that's the same in Hook. Uh, it is a faraway place where the rules don't apply, where you can, uh, you can be whoever you want to be, you can live, you can imagine a feast right in front of you, and you can be a child forever. It's also, in Hook, a place that's really hard to remember once you've left it. It is a place that once you leave it, you have lost it. Um, and I think that where this intersects with the themes of Peter Pan and Hook is that the story is about the loss of innocence and how uh, it, it tells us that we can't get our innocence back once we have lost it. We cannot reclaim Neverland once we have left it. Uh, and I think this story... Um, takes the Peter Pan idea that you cannot reclaim Neverland and challenges that a little bit and says maybe there are ways to symbolically reclaim Neverland. Yeah, can I expand on that a little bit? Yeah, please. Because you said that once you leave Neverland, you've lost it. I don't really read Hook, the movie, and its relationship to Neverland that way. Uh -huh. And the reason is because there are two characters that were there that left that do in Toodles and Wendy. Yeah. You can leave Neverland and remember it. 
what we're seeing is someone who has repressed it. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're seeing Peter Pan having repressed Neverland from his memory and has has done so, has repressed it so deep down that to Peter, his life started at the age of 12 yeah. and there's nothing beforehand. Now, repression is a psychoanalytical term. I think it was coined by Sigmund Freud, um, but certainly Sigmund Freud talked about it. It's called a defense mechanism. It's when you take a painful part of your life, a memory, and you push it out of your conscious mind into your subconscious mind in a way to erase that it ever happened so that you don't confront it. And if we look at, there is a relationship to this land and memory to a certain degree. Yeah. It's telling that Toodles, what is his problem? He's forgotten where his marbles are. Yeah, he has lost right? his marbles. He is. He has lost some part of his memory. He's lost his happy thought. He can't find it. So there's a tangible aspect to it. But Wendy seems to be a, a character that is in full psychic harmony with the fantastic and traumatic past the, and the current present. And hence she can remember it all yeah. and remember it all clearly. Yeah. But it's Pan that has repressed it. You know, we see that echoed here and we see that carried out through Jack, who once he starts identifying with Hook, starts to forget the painful reality that he's mad at his father. We see Jack start to repress it. But other characters don't seem to have that same memory um, issue. So it seems to be really specific to Peter and to Jack. And so to me... If I look at that and if I look at repression as a defense mechanism and I ask myself, what's Neverland in Hook? It's the id. It is the subconscious part where your desires, whatever you can imagine, is real. You can fly. You mentioned the lack of consequences, the constant adventure, the constant seeking of, of pleasure. And, you know, so we see Penn is there. Peter is there. After he fails to rescue his kids on the ship, he descends into the water, right? He descends deeper into the illusion, and there he is greeted by beautiful, mysterious mermaids who breathe sexily they oxygen. They kiss him full on the mouth. Yeah. And they pull him into a clamshell. We see that Peter also makes out with Tinkerbell. Yep. This other object, this fantasy magical object, becomes a big and beautiful woman and professes her love and her servitude and her desire to be with Peter and whatever Peter wants, Tink will always be there. What else do we see in the psychoanalytical lens here and how we understand Neverland? Peter Pan, the character, loved Wendy, but he also revered her as a mother. Yeah. Yeah, in the story, you know, they bring Wendy to Neverland and then the Lost Boys all want her to be their mother. They immediately are like, oh, a girl? She must be our mother. Uh, so the, the adoption of the maternal domestic role is a huge part of it. But then you complicate it with Peter's romantic feelings for her, which are implied in Peter Pan and are realized in Hook. And what does Peter do? What makes him want to stay? What makes him decide to repress what happened in Neverland was the desire to fulfill his Oedipal complex <laughs> right. by marrying his mom. He marries his mother, his symbolic mother's 
granddaughter. Yeah. He marries his mom and then makes children. He's Oedipus, right? And he is blind to his own past. And the problem is because he's repressed who he was, because he has not confronted the trauma of having to be a 10-year-old who leads other 10-year-olds to war, he then has a disordered life where he's not able to balance his professional life and his personal life. To me, the the Neverland is the it, it's the unconscious. And Peter has to descend into his unconscious if he's going to fix the broken rot in his family. If he's going to find that underneath the surface, there's a Captain Hook that's there saying, you're not allowed to leave the past. I'm going to drag you violently back into it. And I'm going to force you. Like the thing what Freud says about repression is that it doesn't work. Those memories, if you don't deal with them, start infiltrating in your conscious mind in ways that you couldn't anticipate. And that's where neuroses start to come from. Well, what is this character at the beginning of this movie, if not neurotic? Incredibly neurotic. He's literally suffering from neuroses. Now, I don't necessarily think this is an intentional read, the psychoanalytical read on it. I don't think Steven Spielberg was like, Peter Pan's suffering from an Oedipal complex, complex in Neverland is his id, and Captain Hook is dragging him into his subconscious mind in which he has to reconcile his past and his present so he can become a good dad. But that's the point of psychoanalysis is that these things are in all of us and that they will eventually seep their way into our myth and into our legends and into our Peter Pan. What we're seeing then, if you'll permit me another point, is we're seeing the Oedipal complexes coming from the story creators being built into the movie and manifesting in like a like almost a beat for beat Freudian um, way that we can psychoanalyze this movie. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting read of it, and I think it's really valid. Uh, there's a tendency to read Peter Pan, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, with a psychoanalytical lens, even though it was written before most of Freud's um, works on the subject. It uh, precipitates Freud in a lot of ways, especially in the way that it um, addresses very um, nimbly and very lightly the idea of childhood sexuality, which Freud would say, you know, uh, expressions of childhood sexuality are expressions of uh, repressed abuse or trauma in the past, and they are unnatural and they are causes of neuroses. But uh, what we know about uh, childhood development today, what we know about contemporary psychology says that that is a very normal part of coming of age and that um, childhood sexuality is is normal. It's how we develop as human beings. And so obviously a story written in 1904 can't be explicit with how it experiments with childhood sexuality, but Hook in 1991 with an adult, Peter Pan, returning to Neverland can confront those things of his past. The fact that he had a weird love triangle with Wendy and Tinkerbell, that Tinkerbell had this jealousy, um, and that there are sexual fantasies that are rampant throughout Neverland as part of the, you know, wild imaginative adventure that it is. So I think that's really a fascinating way to read it and also to try and understand why this guy's psychology is so messed up, why this guy can't focus on his children and his family while he has them, why he is driven so far into work and so far away from the Neverland ideal that he used to be. 
It's because he has repressed it. Yeah. It's because he, instead of confronting the trauma of his past, he's choosing to ignore it and pushing it into his um, subconscious mind. It's part of the magic of the movie, but because other characters don't have the same um, lapse of memory that Peter has, and the only other character that seems to suffer from the lapse of memory in a similar way is his son, it implies that this is not a magical problem as much as it is a psychological problem bred from magic. Yeah. That the magic makes it easier, right? But it's not the reason why it happens. The reason is because Peter is repressing it. He's repressing the fact that, you know, he married his mother's granddaughter. Yeah. And like father, like son, you know, if you, you have trauma in your past, you're going to handle it similar ways. What did he need to do? He needed to defeat the father, the adult male, the Captain Hook. He had to castrate by chopping off his hand and then goes and marries his mother's granddaughter. Yeah. It's so, it's so, so very clear. Um, You know, the other aspect that Hook really expands upon is this idea of the absent mother, um, and uh, it expands upon the Lost Boys and their broken psychological state. So Peter, we know, is suffering from not being able to remember his mother. Um, he feels loss uh, in the fact that he does not have that memory, and that's a huge part of why he treats Wendy with such reverence. Um, and then once he does remember his mother, he feels quite a tragedy about um, that loss and about how he never was able to be with them. And when he tried to be with them again, they had a new family. Um, and then we see with the other lost boys, uh, with Thudbutt in particular, it's hard to talk about a, a serious point when you say Thudbutt, but uh, you know, there is a, a poignant scene between the two of them when he says, do you remember your mother? My happy thought is my mother. Um, and so this feeling of the absence of a mother is felt throughout the whole story. Even Maggie, um, you know, continually chastises Hook about how he really needs a mommy, and he's he's messed up because he doesn't have a mommy. Um, and so I think, as much as this movie is concerned with fathers and sons and the relationship between Peter and Jack, it's also very aware of um, of the need for a maternal influence and the loss that one would feel if one lost that. I completely agree with that because in it, what makes Peter Pan able to go home and become a good father and become a the adult that he needs to be. It's that reconciliation of that Oedipal complex. Yeah. It's getting over the past trauma. It's confronting it. It is literally defeating it in battle. It's allowing the reptile part of his consciousness, the crocodile, to swallow the Captain Hook so that he can go home after having confronted the demons of his past and be like, I'm now ready to live as an adult and to raise my kids and to pass on the joy. And I now remember that I'm Peter Pan, right? He doesn't forget the second time. That's so significant. He now remembers that he's Peter Pan and he's going on his next adventure, which is presumably to raise two awesome kids. Yeah. And the reconciliation of those two identities of Peter Pan and Peter Banning of the fantasy childhood and the reality adulthood is not the only reconciliation that happens in this movie. So we, by the end of this movie, we understand that Neverland and London are two sides of the same coin. Smee shows up in both. You can fly between them. You can see the star and Tootles ends up 
whirling in the sky toward that star. Those things become a little bit closer together, the fantasy and the reality. And I think what this is doing is acknowledging that, um, you know, our, our presupposition about uh, Neverland and the real world are that they are two separate things that are not close together. Our perception of Peter Banning and Peter Pan is that they are two separate things, they are not close together. Our presupposition about childhood and adulthood is that they are two separate things and once you lose one, you cannot get back to it. And this movie says you can. Uh, you obviously can't go backwards. You can't say, I'm never growing up. That's not possible. You have to grow up. But your Neverland is not gone. If you have memory, if you have the will to access what you were as a child, to remember who you were as a child, you have the ability to carry the magic of that into adulthood. And that is hard. That is like really hard work. And often it requires delving into painful trauma and things in our past that we would rather forget. But we have to remember it if we want to be whole and complete human beings and not automata who just work at the office and miss our son's baseball games. Uh, so Peter, by the end of this, is able to bring Neverland and the real world a little bit closer together and say, hey, there really isn't so much of a binary between childhood and adulthood. It's a little bit of an arbitrary distinction because I'm still the same person. I still have continuity. I still have the ability to find joy in the world. I could still use my imagination. You're still a self that has sustained through time yeah. with a core identity. I totally agree with that. The problem with Peter Banning is that he has repressed his past. The success of Peter Pan returning to the role of Peter Banning is that he no longer represses it. And that is the, that is to me the, at least the psychoanalytical lens by which what allows him to overcome his literal demons coming back to him, manifesting out of his memory, even though he's repressed them, it still happened and they still return and they still try to suck him back into this world. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. You have to bring these things within into a, a level of balance. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Who says and who decides that your childhood has ended? Right. Where does that line actually exist? When do you become an adult? It's really useful for legal purposes, deciding when you can vote, when you can drive, when you can do things, when you get certain adult rights and privileges. So there's a certain utility to having that line. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But at the end of the day, where really, truly, like philosophically, when does your childhood end and your adulthood begin? And what Hook is telling us is that that is totally imaginary. Yeah. That line is arbitrarily created. Peter Banning created it in his mind because he repressed his past. And, but Moira doesn't have those same sensibilities. Yeah. Moira is able to feel and live and be a good mother 
and be the child that she needs to be, but also be the parent that she needs to be to raise her children and prepare them for their journey through life. You know, so to me, that recognizing that fundamental arbitrariness and that the idea is that there really isn't a line. Now, there are points in which, you know, people are living in their past too much. Yeah. And they're so obsessed with their past that they can't, they, they might be able to, they should maybe push some of it down. And this movie gives us that character. Yeah. It gives us that character in Hook, who is so fixated on his past trauma, who's unable to let any of it go, that he has become a depressed, murdering bastard who would rather be called evil than good. Who is obsessed with getting revenge on a child. Like, who is this guy? Yeah, he's completely hung up on the He murders children and the native inhabitants of an island because he can't get over the fact, because he can't let the past go. Yeah. And it has turned him into a despicable, terrible person who tries to kill himself in this movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Granted, mostly for show. It's drama, that, yeah. That's legitimately real pain there. Yeah. You know, this is a character that's, that is is legitimately asking, is there any adventure left in life? Why am I doing this? I'm completely bored. My life is hollow, and if I can't have my epic battle with Peter Pan the way I envisioned it. I have no purpose. I have no purpose. I have no legacy. And the only way that Shmi can talk him out of wanting to die, because he doesn't actually want to kill himself, but the only way that he does is he appeals to his sense of narcissism by saying, what would the world be like without you? And he's like, yeah, no, you're right. No, the world's better off with me in it. Thank you for appealing to my narcissism. He despises his own men who worship them. He kills them mercilessly at any time and any way that he can. He fakes to love Jack just as a revenge ploy because he can't let the past go, right? He's so fixated on the fact that Peter Pan chopped off of his hand that he's become the actual villain that people warn their children about. He becomes that monster because he's unable to let go and of some of that history. He's not able to move on. And it is so perfectly crystallized in how he destroys clocks. Yeah. In a world in which people do not age, a clock may seem like somewhat of an arbitrary, unuseful thing to begin with. But he doesn't destroy the clocks because he doesn't really need to count the days because while he lives in this world, he's immortal. He will not die. He will not age. He destroys those clocks because they remind him of the clock in the belly of the crocodile, the belly of the whale, so to speak. Yeah. The animal that devoured his flesh and that has been haunting him his entire life. That is, And that is one of the reasons why this movie does work thematically. You have a character who will not remember and another character who can't forget. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's great. And I would add the kind of third wheel onto this triangle, which is Rufio, right? So where hook is a character who is clearly an adult and who hates the institution of childhood, but is still hung up on the past and is trying to essentially go backwards and rewrite his past. You have Rufio, who is the boy who took over Pan's position, uh, says that he will never grow up, 
but he looks, he's prototypically any child who had to grow up too fast, taking on the leadership of the band of lost boys who don't have real parents, uh, who don't have anyone teaching them how to become men someday, uh, you know, he has taken on that role and it has hardened him and not let him enjoy to his fullest extent the childhood that he has, the forever childhood that he has. So both of these characters are models of what not to be. And I think Peter, um, both Peter Banning and Peter Pan as two separate identities have to make the choice to come together and be one, right? So Peter Banning has to make the choice to become Peter Pan again. And then once he's Peter Pan and he has forgotten his family momentarily, he has to once again make the choice to be Peter Banning. Those two characters have to find a way to choose to be together again and be one whole and complete person. That is a significant point that I just want to highlight as well yeah. and echo. When Peter finally, when Peter Banning becomes Peter Pan, there is a scene in which he seems to have forgotten why he's there, which is to rescue his children from Hook. And he just wants to play and he has this beautiful scene with him in Tinkerbell where Tinkerbell grows up. Well, it doesn't grow up. She becomes an adult and she professes her undying love to Peter and they kiss. And Peter remembers first his wife, then his children. Yeah. And that's the moment where he flies, where he reconciles all these different things. And he is finally free, right? Is when he remembers his son, yeah. And remembers that the reason he stayed was because he really wanted to be a father. And what he has failed to be, he's become a great corporate lawyer. He has not become a good father. And what he needs to learn to do is become a good father first. That's why he gave up immortality. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that's why he said, I'm not going to be a kid forever. I'm going to stay here because I actually one day want to be a dad myself. Yeah. And I totally, I totally yeah. love it. How much is this like, you know, the, the fall of man, right? The end of childhood for mankind, eating the apple in the Garden of Eden, which means that we're no longer in the garden anymore. It means we're no longer innocent, but we have knowledge. How freaking great is knowledge? Like, that's, that's the change here. We go from, as William Blake would have put it, from innocence to experience. And... Innocence is great, but so is experience. So is being an adult who has memories of being a child. Uh, and that can be a really fulfilling and rewarding state to be in and can lead you to a kind of higher innocence, which is what Peter Banning finally achieves here. And there's also an element on it that's say, making a, a strong statement about parenting. If you choose, and you don't have to choose to be a parent, but if you choose to be a parent, be a good one. Yeah. You know, don't be a jerk to your son. Yeah. You know, like, don't put your corporate deal ahead of your son's game. And don't break promises. You know, and ultimately it's that. It's not that he didn't come to the game. It's that he promised to come to the game and he didn't and he go. he didn't, yeah. And that is the the, the wedge there. You know, I had a, a father with a very demanding career, right, who had to very frequently work weekends and sometimes work away from home and go on business trips. And he never failed to come to a thing that he said he'd be at. Yeah. As if my dad said, I'm going to be at this, I'll be there. Was he at every Little League baseball game? No, he couldn't be. But he never promised to be at one and didn't. 
Yeah. And that's that's the the point here, right? That is the glue of the divide between Peter and Jack. That is why Jack is so susceptible to Hook's, you know, offer to actually be a better father because he Hook literally says to him, it's not subtle. Hook says, "Have I ever made a promise to you I haven't kept?" Right. And he's just like, "Oh, that's a good point." Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you have it. You yeah. like you keep your promises. So maybe I should hang out with this Hook dude. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Hook is such a fascinating character. He's such an interesting bundle of contradictions for me. I think Smee calls him like the biggest sleaze on the seven seas. And like we, like we've said, he's openly embraced that he is the bad guy and he likes that identity and he's definitely a pirate and he is uncivilized, but he's got this veneer of civilization, the perfectly, uh, you know, manicured wig and, um, you know, wardrobe, the carpet that he has to lay out every time he walks down the fixation on good form and bad form. So the rules of engagement really matter to Hook until they don't matter anymore. And he's got the, uh, you know, underhand, uh, pun intended, and he's ready to throw out the rules of engagement once he loses advantage. I just think he's a fascinating bundle of contradictions there. Yeah, I do agree. You know, one thing I was thinking about when rewatching this movie was really what is a pirate? And I wanted to talk about the history of the pirate. And I went down a bit of a, a rabbit hole because if there's one thing that Captain Hook is, is that he's a pirate. Yeah. And to a certain extent, we all know what a pirate is. They're a swashbuckler. They um, steal and lie and cheat. And depending upon the pirate's story, they also might be incredibly daring and handsome and beautiful and attractive, or they might be villainous and evil and spineless and, you know, ready to stab their enemy in the back. And, you know, piracy as a, as an idea, as a phenomenon is really, really old. So in the Roman empire, they largely ruled they largely they ruled over the uh, mediterranean area so the ancient mediterranean society was the roman sphere of influence and there's a lot of sea it's called the mediterranean because of the sea and as they were rising to power and prominence they had a piracy issue they had a group a large group and it existed for a long time of people in boats that would stop roman ships and steal from them they would often, um, you know, kidnap if there were any noble or prominent or rich members of any family that was of note. Famously, Julius Caesar was kidnapped by pirates. That's amazing. And by Roman pirates. And the idea of piracy really kind of was sort of permeating in the back of my mind. What makes a pirate? How do we know a pirate is a pirate? What's the difference between the Navy and the pirates, for example? How do we know which one is the pirate versus which one is the Navy? And while doing some research research on this, I read this entire you know, Wikipedia entry, so not a scholarly journal, about Vikings as pirates, and that like red flagged right there. Yeah. And that's where I like really stopped and I started meditating on it. For someone to be a pirate they have to be outside the boundaries of civilized space. There has to be an organization in which this is where commerce happens. When war happens in there, it's war, it's not crime. And there's this space outside 
where we don't have a sphere of interest. And that space outside is where the lawless live. You called him uncivilized. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I would submit that just about any, in particular, if we're dealing in our past, any military order, whether they are pirates or whether they are Roman soldiers, could be defined as uncivilized. I will tell you a specific example. Julius Caesar did get kidnapped by pirates. He writes about this in his own memoirs. And instead of the pirates hating him, they loved him. You know why? He started working with them. If he was going to be kidnapped with the pirates, he was going to help swab the deck and do all of the Roman Navy Hmm. things. And he made the best of the situation and they held him for ransom. And he was a young man. His family was very wealthy. They paid the ransom and he liked the pirates and the pirates liked him. So what did young man Julius Caesar, who was kidnapped by pirates, do? Bought a bunch of boats, hunted the pirates down, and crucified them all. Wow. Every single one of them. And that just reminds me the idea that, yeah, okay, so the pirates are the uncivilized ones, but they actually treated Julius Caesar really well. (laughs) He admits that he liked the pirates, and the pirates liked him because he didn't have a snobby aristocratic attitude. He didn't look down on them. He said, okay, I'm here. What do you need me to do? And they're like, this kid's great. I can't believe he's a rich kid. We really like him. And then he crucified every single one of them. He nailed them to crosses while they were alive and let them die. Exposed to the elements. And ask ourselves, well, who in this story is the civilized one? And to a certain extent, I look at this lens of understanding the boundaries of what is normal, ordered, controlled space and uncontrolled wild space. And this is where the pirates live. And the pirates are innately bad. And then I remember like George Washington, who is the hero of the American Revolution, our first president, Americans, we freaking adore him. We love him. We have monuments to him. We name everything after him. Cities after him, states after him. And there's a lot to admire. He flogged and hanged men in the Revolutionary Army. He did some of the things that we see Captain Hook do. Now, he didn't put anyone into a box and feed them scorpions. Right. That I know of. There's no evidence of that. But he did whip his men, and if they deserted, he hung them. He hung his men who were just like, I'm tired and ready to give up. And that was a way because the the discipline of the army was that brutal in that time that the commander could execute his men with impunity. And Hook, as the commander in this proto-military pirate order, can execute his men with impunity. And we have to ask ourselves, what makes them pirates? Now, melodramatically speaking, we get lots of clues that they're evil. They call themselves evil, right? They are trying to kill children, you know, like, so I'm not arguing that we should reinvent the pirate in Hook as a good guy. Right, yeah. But what I'm rather saying is extrapolating the lessons of understanding that these borders of what is civilized versus uncivilized are largely imaginary and often don't actually paint a true, a valid, a fundamental uh, picture of the world that uh, has a, a element of veracity to it. Yeah. For lack of a better term. 
Rather, they create a reality that is beneficial for those willing and looking to do violence. So it's easy for us to look at them as pirates. The film casts them as pirates. They call themselves pirates. So we automatically go, okay, they're bad. They're thieves. They're uncivilized. They're barbaric. Hence, they're drawn that way. Hence, it's okay that they die. Yeah. Right? Hence, it's okay that they get killed. In the same way that it's okay that Julius Caesar killed his pirates by crucifixion. Right? On the reverse hand, we look at the Lost Boys. The Lost Boys are also killers. They try to kill the hero when they first meet him in a very weird, torturous game. And they are very willing to go to war. They have demarcated the area of the Lost Boys of the area that that's where the good people are. And there's the boundary between that. And it's literally manifested as children versus adults. Yeah, yeah. It becomes easy to tell the boundary when the, there's a like clear demarcation point. The children are the Lost Boys. They're good. The adults are the pirates. They're bad. And what complicates this is enter an adult that's neither. Yeah. Neither a lost boy nor a pirate. And you confront that with the assumption that Rufio, uh, you know, explains, which is that all adults are pirates and we kill pirates. Uh, This association of if you are an adult, you must be a pirate. You have left the state of innocent childhood that we live in here, which also includes, uh, you know, lots of killing. And you have entered this state that looks a lot like our state. They still play games. They're still a brotherhood, the pirates. Um, they just have the uh, you know codification of evil. And they have the codification of maturity and experience that leads to uh, evil. Uh, so there's very much, I think, this um, expressionistic quality in how each side interprets the other and how it... Um, antagonizes childhood versus adulthood and makes those spaces even further apart. And be wary when you label one as a pirate, as when you label anyone as a thing, you're creating the thing as you label it. As I say that you are a pirate, I am saying so many individual and um, logical and prescriptive qualities. You're not part of civilization. You are a thief. You live on the sea, and you are inherently dangerous when you become a pirate. When in reality, most um, you know people that become pirates, those are typically veterans of wars that don't have a place in peace. Yeah. That's where a lot of history's brigands and pirates come from. All they really know is war, and all they really know to do is how to kill their enemy, And when peace happens, they don't really have a place to go. And a lot of them would turn to piracy or they would turn to, you know, brigands. So like the idea of a brigand on land, a pirate on sea, and even the pirates that Caesar went and killed, they didn't really view themselves as pirates. They viewed the Romans as invaders in their space, that they were justified in attacking And they were justified in holding ransom and holding Julius Caesar ransom was a sign of respect to them. And so just be careful with these terms and these labels. They can make a lot of fun, narratively speaking, when you have a character like Captain Hook and he's an insidious pirate. But there's a lot that happens underneath the surface that got us to these terms. And the question is, is should they? And they do need to be scrutinized. And 
this movie, while it scrutinizes the lore of, of Peter Pan from a certain perspective by imagining Pan as an adult who doesn't know he's Peter Pan, it doesn't really take that same lens to, to me by scrutinizing the pirates and Captain Hook and, and more broadly speaking than Neverland. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. I really appreciate you bringing that context in. Um, and I got to talk about Julius Caesar crucifying pirates. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody listening thought that's where this was going to go. And you're welcome. You're welcome. Do you have anything else to say about Hook before we wrap up? I do, but my head is swimming with pirates and lost boys right now. Mermaids and, and mermaids and fairy dust. I mean, there are lots of mythological components that we could probably dive into, but I just think we're kind of pushing up on time here. I I think all in all, Hook is a truly unique, stellar movie that it is nostalgia manifest. Yeah. The movie exists because a bunch of filmmakers, nostalgic for Peter Pan, wanted to tell another aspect of that story. And in it, they use imagery. They use um, so many things from the Peter Pan legacy, in particular, the Disney um, cartoon adaptation. They literally pull some shot-for-shot remakes of it in live action. So because of the nostalgia for Peter Pan, this movie exists. I saw it as a kid, and I watch it now nostalgically for this movie. It is probably one of the greatest examples of the power of reaching into our mythic past to tell a new and amazing story that itself becomes its own piece of nostalgia. Yeah, I think that's that's incredible. And, you know, on this journey where we're looking at these five films that evoke nostalgia for us, the first two that we have done, Back to the Future and Hook, are both really involved and really engaged in critiquing the past and our relationship to our past. And they're both interested in nostalgia in different ways. Uh, so this wasn't intentional for us to be like, let's do nostalgic movies that are about nostalgia, but it's just happened with these first two movies. And I think that's provided us some really interesting conversation and, uh, you know, ways to, to access that kind of storytelling. So that's been really cool. Um, here as we wrap up, um, I just wanted to say a couple of words about the great late Robin Williams. Um, I'm going to get a little bit emotional here. We, um, at the midnight myth are big, big fans of his work. I don't think there has been any actor or comedian who has had like such an emotional impact, um, on me, uh, especially growing up what it was like to witness the like great power of performance that Robin Williams had and the joy that he brought into the world. Um, and we lost him a few years ago to suicide. And that is a really hard thing to remember as you were watching him stand out a window with his hands on his hips and say, to live will be an awfully big adventure. So um, it's a tough time for everybody right now. Um, and I just wanted to say a couple of words about protecting your mental health and being careful and thoughtful with yourself and your loved ones. So if you or a loved one are struggling with mental illness or depression, there are resources available online um, and from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. You can go to nami.org to learn more. You can call their helpline at 800-950-6264. Or if you're in a crisis, you can text NAMI to 741741 for 24-7 confidential free 
crisis counseling. Um, there are lots more resources for people who are in crisis online and um, via other virtual methods. Uh, and I implore you, if you are someone who is struggling, please seek help because the world is better with you in it. Yeah, it it was really hard watching Captain Hook, who is suicidal yeah. in this movie, who attempts to kill himself, and then watching that last scene with Robin Williams affirming life and the way it is acted so truly and so believably that I look at that character as Peter Pan telling me that the best thing to be is alive knowing that Robin Williams lost his life to his battle with mental illness. And yeah, if you need anything out there too, Midnight Myth listeners, you know how to find us. We're here for you. Orient yourself to joy whatever way you can. Yeah. And we're all going to get through it. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. trying to say what am i trying to say what am i trying to woofy yo woofy yo woofy yo don't try to stop me me 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 try to stop me this is a suicide not a game